Amen. I'm sometimes more, sometimes less aware of God's presence in our worship, but it's clear to me today He's with us. Please turn to the book of Acts, chapter 12. Brother Frank, Brother Mike, thank you for what you do. It's a blessing a million times over for decades. Thank you. Last time we covered the end of chapter 11. If you remember, we did 19 through 30. The believers had been scattered because of persecution following the stoning of Stephen. And those people had gone as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. But the text told us that when they were there, they didn't preach the gospel to the Gentiles, just the Jews there. And, you know, sometimes in our in our thinking, we're like, they were so shallow, so short-sighted. But no, it makes perfect sense that they would preach to the Jews there. The Messiah was a promise that would come for them. He, it's God's promise. Yes, they were correct, but who should we go to? The people who believe in the same God as us. And if we want to know, you know, Phoenicia would be like present-day Lebanon. Cyprus, an island off of the coast, a hundred miles off the coast. And we learned that in that section, the gospel ministry that had been happening in Antioch, which history tells us was a massive ancient city, over 500,000 people. It was a very large city. And believers, not the people who were there already, but believers from Cyprus came to Antioch and they did preach to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles. And the Bible says a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And the text told us something that's interesting. The text told us that they believed because the hand of the Lord was with them and helped them. And the text doesn't always tell us that, but isn't that a presupposition that we should have in our mind? If it works, it's because God's hand is with us and helping us. God blesses. He helps. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from God. And listen, there's no shadow of turning. You ever think about this expression? As the sun moves, the shadow moves with it. God's shadow does not change. He does not change. And He gives gifts to His children. Good gifts. He blesses people who come from a faraway island and preach to pagans. And a great number, quote, great number believed and turn to the Lord. Okay, well, this is strange because the first three areas that we're hearing about, especially Antioch, they weren't preaching to the Gentiles in those areas. It seems like they hadn't heard the news yet of this incident with Cornelius. And that God's speaking to Peter and Cornelius both to to make this divine appointment happen that the church would know God is saving the Gentiles also. 
They hadn't heard about that, apparently. But after these believers come from Cyprus and preach in Antioch to Gentiles, and they believe, that news gets down to Jerusalem quickly because they send a group from Jerusalem to go check it out. They send Barnabas to go validate the ministry that's happening in Antioch. Just like they had done in Samaria, if you remember in Acts, when they had success in Samaria, their disciples sent from Jerusalem to go check it out. And Barnabas, he goes there, the Bible says, to um, see what's happening, and he was glad. He was glad. And so what did he do? He exhorted them, remain faithful to the Lord. Remain faithful. And then lastly, we read about some prophets that came down from Jerusalem and foretold of a famine that was going to be coming. A great famine. And the reason they came is to prepare in advance gifts that might help with that famine. And they did. They took up collections and they took them, we are told, verse 30, of chapter 11, they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So Barnabas and Saul collected this money, took it to Jerusalem, gave it to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. And that brings us to today's text, chapter 12, and we'll read the chapter. It's mostly narrative, but there's definitely some stuff that we're going to talk about. <clears throat> Chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, 
where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting so they, that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance concerning, uh, excuse me, among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's food. Excuse me, depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Amen. Verse 1. As Paul and Barnabas are bringing gifts to help with the coming famine, right? we read about that time, Herod the king began to persecute Christians. He struck some with violence who were part of the church. This is who is this Herod? This is, this is the grandson of Herod the Great. This is the grandson of Herod the Great. So, what does he do, we are told? He strikes James. Verse 2, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. This is not Jesus' brother James. This is James, the brother of John, one of the so-called sons of thunder. If you remember what I read and this morning in Matthew, when we read about the transfiguration, who was there? Peter, James, John, this James. He strikes him with the sword and... We'd have to do some more investigation, I guess, Eric, to know how they know this. But what I was reading on it is this, this word with the sword indicates it's more gruesome than normal. Normally, beheadings would happen with an axe. And if you were beheaded with the sword, that was worse somehow. Like 
more dishonoring to the person who was killed. James is now dead. And if you remember, Jesus asked them at one point if they were able to drink the cup that he was drinking, and they said, yes, we are, not knowing what he meant. And Jesus said, you will drink that cup. And here's the example. James is now dead as a martyr in fulfillment of the prophecy of Jesus. Verse 3, And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So apparently, Herod didn't do this initially to please the Jews. Maybe he thought it might. We're not told why he did this. Um, What we know about this guy, Herod, who's the grandson of who we know as Herod the Great, he was a childhood friend of a bunch of various future emperors in Rome and was given favor by them because of it later in life. And he was put in charge of that region. And after... James is killed, and he sees that the Jews like that he's persecuting the Christians. He begins to do it even more. He arrests Peter also. On what charge? He doesn't need a charge. If the Jews are going to bring a complaint to Rome and say, we want this guy executed, they'd have to bring a charge. If the Romans decide, I'm just going to kill you, you're not a citizen, you get no trial. Peter is arrested and kept in prison. Verse, well, let's read verse 4 again. Actually, 3. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. So it's, the Passover is happening right now. We're not sure what day of that feast was he arrested. We're not told when. It could have been one day until the end, or it could have been at the very beginning, which could be almost a week. Um, So we're not told. But verse 4, it seems that he definitely prepares to execute him But it will displease the Jews if he kills him during the Passover. So he's going to just arrest him and hold him and wait until it's over. People have a strange way of justifying their actions, don't they? We don't want to defile the day. doesn't matter that we've arrested him for no reason whatsoever and we're going to now cut his head off as soon as this Passover is over. It's merely for show. It'll dishonor the festival if we do it now. Let's wait until it's over. If you remember, that same thing happened when Jesus was on the cross. They wanted to get him down quickly, remember? And they said, go break all their legs and they won't be able to breathe anymore. They won't be able to push. I don't know if you've ever studied this about crucifixions. But a lot of deaths happen because of suffocation. They have to push up to breathe and they just eventually have no strength to push up and they die. So if you break their legs, you, you speed that process. When they came to Jesus, he had already died. No need to break his legs. 
gruesome, isn't it? It's gruesome. Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So we aren't sure exactly how long it was from the time he's arrested to the time that they plan to bring him out to execute him at the end of the feast. But likely several days. And what what we have as a setting is he's in prison. He has 16 people, basically, who are in charge of watching over him. Right? There's four groups of four that are taking turns watching him. Herod does not want anything to happen to him. seems like a lot of people to put in charge of one guy in prison who's chained up. And the Christians are not a threat, typically, right? So it seems odd that there's so many watching him. And the church begins, quote, earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. What is earnest prayer? I think it's prayer that's not just going through the motions, but they're really crying out to God sincerely from the heart, and they're not stopping. I'm praying for you. You know, sometimes we tell friends that we're praying for them, and hopefully we're not just lying. But are we praying for them? Like, how much? Like, once? And that's still good. Pray for them. But listen... I pray, I hope we'll be people of earnest prayer. Long-term prayer. The church begins to pray, and I don't think this is one collection of people in one location. I think there's a bunch of different groups. I mean, there's 3,000 people that were added in one day. They're not all meeting in one place. There's a bunch of houses, a bunch of friends and families and believers who are gathering and praying for Him, knowing what's happened. But Herod, he definitely intends to kill him. He's just waiting for the right moment. If if the reason why he captured Peter in the first place is because he saw that when he killed James, they were happy about it. Well, you're kind of tempering their happiness if you kill him on the day that they don't want you to kill him. So he's going to wait to get the most benefit and we're not told why he hates James or why, why he was originally doing that. Um, but, you know, it, it could very well be that he was like John the Baptist who pointed out sins and did not fear. I mean, from what we know, right? James and John, the sons of thunder. He may not have been very timid in his rebuke of things that he saw happening. But... Speculation. We don't know why. Verses 6 through 10. So Herod is about to bring him out. The Passover is ended now. Now's a good time. He's about to bring him out. That, that day, he's going to bring him out. And that same day, Peter's sleeping. Between two soldiers. So he's chained and there are soldiers sleeping on either side of him. Or are they sleeping? Whatever they're doing, they're, they're not 
they're not um, contending against his release in this moment. Peter is delivered. He's rescued. An angel of the Lord comes to help him. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. Prisons would likely be very dark and damp kind of a place, right? But this is an angel. Light shines forth. Peter's told to get up, wake up, put on your sandals, get out of here, we're going, wrap your cloak around you, verse 9, the, or um, at the end of verse 7, the chains just fell off his hands. How is he able to leave the prison? How is he able to walk past everybody? The chains just fall off, doors just open. What are all the soldiers doing in the moment? Do they, are they blind? Did God make them invisible and they just walked out? We have no idea. Did they just, were they all knocked out by the angel? We don't know what happened. We just know that he's, he's saved. The churches, when I say churches, I don't mean more than one real church, but the different handfuls of people that are praying earnestly since he's been arrested, praying earnestly for him. And the angel of the Lord comes and rescues him. And this is so crazy that Peter didn't even know what was being done was real. He thought he was seeing another vision, like he had just seen one, right? He's like, I saw a sheet come down with food on it. Now he's seen another vision of him just walking out of the prison, and he's, he doesn't know it's actually happening. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Verse 10. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. So he's rescued. He's delivered into freedom. The angel departs. Verse 12, or verse 11, Peter said to himself, Now, oh, excuse me, he came to himself. Like he, he was in a, some sort of a slumber, some sort of a dream-like state, maybe trance-like. Now I am sure the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the, that the Jewish people were expecting. Right? You can, you're sure that they wanted to get rid of Peter. They had not. He'd been very close to Jesus the whole time, right? He had struck the official's ear with a sword before he, he's a, a part of all this uproar. They would be happy, and I'm sure we're very pleased that Herod had arrested him. Um, verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. So when we read about John Mark, this is his mom's house. They're all praying at John Mark's mom's house. There are many gathered together and were praying. Verse 13, he knocked at the door. A servant girl comes to the door. She, sees, she hears his voice. She's like, Peter's outside. And they're like, what are you talking about? Shh, we're praying. 
Can you imagine? They're all in there praying. Quiet. He's out there. Oh, it's his angel. Which I don't even know what that means. I don't know what their theology is. The angel who protects him or impersonates him? I'm not sure. Verse 16. Peter continued knocking. Can you imagine Peter outside? (laughs) And she's like, he's out there. Like, no, he's not. He's still out there going, I just got out of prison. Let me in. Verse 16, Peter continued knocking. When they were amazed, when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. And then he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Tell these things to James and the brothers. So this is not James, right? Obviously not James, the brother of John, who is now deceased. This is James, the brother of Jesus. Go tell these things to James and the brothers. James, the brother of Jesus, became a prominent leader in the church of Jerusalem. Go tell him that the Lord has delivered me. Tell the brothers too. Let them know what happened. Then he departed and went to another place. So obviously, Herod's not going to be happy when he wakes up and Peter's gone. The soldiers and Herod can't figure out what happened. Where is he? They're like, we don't know too. We woke up. There's no chain. The chains are just laying here. The keys are still in our pockets. No one saw anything. Do you think Herod's going to believe that? Who? Somebody bribed y'all to let him go, right? They have. They're not. He doesn't believe that the angel is going to rescue Peter. If he believed that, why would he arrest him in the first place and plan to harm God's man? They're obviously questioned. No little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the centuries. What happened? We don't know. They deny, right? They have to be accused of evil and they deny it, saying, We did nothing. We did nothing. Herod doesn't believe them, obviously, and orders them to be executed. For what? Incompetence. Your job is to keep him here. You failed. This is making me look bad. The Jews were really happy that I had arrested him. I was about to kill him. Now you let him go? They're executed. Verse 19, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So um, let's stop for a second. So persecution is happening in Jerusalem. There, they are, the, the believers were scattered, but a lot of them are still in Jerusalem. They didn't leave. And Bad things are happening from very powerful people against Christians. 
And they don't seem to be stopping. In fact, they're told multiple times, stop doing what you're doing, but they don't. They keep going anyway. And they're persecuted, but they still don't stop. But what do they do? They make earnest prayer. They don't say, Herod's arresting everybody. Everybody go hide. And I'm not saying that that is never the right course of action. Sometimes it is. But in this case, they said, the right course of action is for us to use our power. And our power is that we have an audience with the king. We're going to petition him. We're going to pray. And does the king hear? He does hear. He dispatches his angel to free him. And we might say, well, okay, who's the first cause in this situation? God is definitely the first cause. God intended to free him. And he intended to use the prayers of his people as the means. We don't know how prayer works. You know how it works exactly? If God knows everything that's going to happen, it's fixed. Well, how do my prayers, how do my prayers fit in the story? I can't tell you that, but I know that he encourages us to pray. And I know that he answers prayer according to his will. That should be a comfort. Does he answer prayers that are not according to his will? No, because that would be a wrong course of action. The right course of action is for God to answer prayers that are in accordance with his will. Because he accomplishes all his holy will. When we pray for something that's not in accordance with his will, as a good father, he says, no. Right? We don't like hearing no. I hated when my parents would say no. I used to ask my mom if I could spend the night at Johnny's house, and she would almost always say no. So I didn't ask her anymore. I asked my dad, who would often say yes. You know how that is. But I didn't ever ask one who said no and then ask the other one who said yes and then go because that would be bad news. God knows when to say no even though we don't like it. We wanted him to say yes. He's smart. He's wise. He's loving. He's kind. He's powerful. He could give it to you. It's not what's good for you, and it's not what's in accordance with its purpose. Listen, do you like hearing no? Nobody likes hearing no. But listen, if your Holy Father says no, be happy. You hear me? It's very difficult. Be happy. It's what's best. If Would He withhold any good thing for you? He gave up the the thing that has the most value in all of the universe, his son. Would he withhold other good things? Just because he's like, nah, you don't need it. He knows what's right for us. We think we know what's right for us. We say, oh Lord, I really want this other job. Or I really want this other house. Or I really want this thing or that thing. Or I want this relationship. Or I want this type of influence. 
And God may say no. And we say, we ought to say, Blessed be the holy will of God and my Father who knows what I need before I ask and only does what's good for me. All that was to say, okay, James was just killed with a sword. In a brutal way. Why did God allow that to happen? It's not pleasant. But what we know is, he died in the manner of... For the faith, as did Jesus. It had been prophesied that he would die this way by Jesus. Bad things happened to Jesus. Why? Because of a good reason. Why was James allowed to be killed like this? Why didn't God rescue him? And are you able to know? Do we need to review the case of Job? Where God, basically to boil it down, says, Job, you don't know what you're talking about. You're just a man. I'm God. I made the universe. You should know we're not on the same level. Even if I told you, it would blow your mind. You can't handle it. It's way too much for you. But God in His providence allows for His people to be killed. James, we know, is a man of faith. Even if he dies, yet he lives. Why did God spare Peter? I mean, we know that God used him greatly, especially in the New Testament writings after this point. But we don't know. But what we should say is, if it happened, it was for the best. Which is very difficult, I understand. It's very difficult. So here at verse 20, we'll finish up. He's angry for some reason with Tyre and Sidon who are over in that area where he is in Caesarea, north of him. We don't know why there's a disagreement, what he's angry about. And they come to him and they want to meet him because they want to reconcile they're getting food through him, through, through his influence, through his food stores. And they want to make peace with him. Um, verse uh, 20. He's angry with people of Tyre and Sidon. It came to him with one accord, and having persuaded the Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. And so Herod, who's not a righteous person for sure, he says, okay, I'll meet you on this day. 
I'll hear what you got to say on this day. And he put on his royal robes and took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. We are not told what he delivered to them at all. We can speculate. We have no idea. Was he telling them how great his kingdom was and how vast his food stores were? Or how they were foolish to to ever have gotten on his bad side in the first place? Was he pondering the questions of the universe to them? Doubtful. But he's got on his royal stuff. He's making himself, you know, pump. He's showing what he's got. And the people, right, they're trying to make peace with him. So we don't know if this is a spontaneous, the voice of a God and not of a man. Like they really are enthralled by him. He's a charismatic teacher. They're loving what they're hearing. Or is this, we're trying to make peace with this dude, whatever. Oh, you're so good. You're so great. We don't know for sure which it was. But whatever it was, he didn't rebuke them for doing that. He received it. Verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory, give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. One commentator spoke about Herod from Josephus' writing. This, this um, event is discussed by Josephus. And he said that Josephus wrote that his apparel was all of silver and of a wonderful contexture and that going in very early in the morning into the theater, the silver shone so with the rays of the rising sun that it struck the spectators with terror and admiration. So, you know, he's got all his fancy stuff on shiny ooh, and the sun reflected, you know, it, it. It's not common for that time, for sure. And whatever it was, they flattered him with praise that really is for God. And he received it readily. And we see that, you know, like Edward says, ain't nobody getting away with nothing. Herod is persecuting Christians and in general just being a bad dude, receiving all this praise from people as if he was God. And God's like, no, you're not. And he's like, how could you describe somebody who's so powerful and pumping themselves up and conceited and arrogant and then say, the worms ate him? Just like a... Just like a mouse that you see in a field and worms are eating it. Just the worms ate him. All that stuff. He's just a man. He's dead. Verse 24. The word of God increased and multiplied. This is what I was trying to get at before. Why did this happen to James? Why did this happen to Peter? Why was he freed? Well, first, why did God allow him to be arrested? And then why did he free him? What we know is that in spite of all this bad stuff that's happening, trials and various things, the Word of God is not hindered. It's multiplying. 
Do you understand? Multiply, it, it means to grow, but not merely to grow, right? It's growing fast. Not just one and one and one. It, it's multiplying almost in a way that it's hard to believe how fast. People go out to preach, even in our day, when they're commanded to stop, even when threatened with violence, they still go out to preach. Did you know this, that the Word of God in our day is multiplying? And that more and more people are being saved every day? Do you know this? If you don't, remind yourself, God is at work. All you have to do is read some stories of Christian martyrs and that more and more people followed up. You know, you can read of the missionaries who prepared to go to an island of cannibals to bring the gospel to them. And upon arriving, within five minutes, they are clubbed to death and eaten. Ten years later, another missionary family goes to the same island and begins to work with them, and many people have been converted. Would you go to that island? Maybe not, but some will. Even in the face of terrible persecution, violence, tremendous evil. If somebody in our church said, I'm moving to Iran because I'm going to preach the gospel, would you discourage them from going? You might. And I, I don't know if I'd say you're wrong. But people go to dangerous places. It's been happening since Jesus' time. And it will continue to happen. Can you strengthen your faith? If you're not willing to go, would you help someone who is? I definitely don't think it's God's will for everyone to move out of the United States and become missionaries in other countries. It's definitely not His will. But God's at work. He cannot be stopped. He couldn't be stopped then, even with threats of violence, actual violence, killing the missionaries who are going to that country. God's purposes cannot be stopped. Another messenger will go there. He's on a mission. It's a mission of love. And he cannot be stopped. He will continue until all his holy will is accomplished. This is what we believe. God will save his people. Not one will be lost. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, the message. Thank you for the people who came before us. Father, we, we do... Um, pity them and and we feel sorry for bad things that happen to them but Father we pray that in our day you would give us strength in our faith that you would help people who are in trials and persecutions and, and bad things Lord and that you would help our faith you would help us to be strong you would help us to obey your commands They're not burdensome. They're good for us. 
And Father, we pray for missionaries that are working even now in, in countries far from home and bringing the gospel as, as they did here that we're reading in Acts. Help them. Help us to help them. Help us to pray for them with earnest prayer, long-suffering prayer. Um, Be with us the rest of our time together today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.